God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, your word to us. It's good and right. Help us to see it as good and right and trustworthy this morning. Give us the grace to trust what it is that you say to us. Lord, even when we don't understand or even when what's said in the text might make us bristle, help us, Lord, to have the grace to see this, to see the good news that's present in the text when we disagree, to see the good news that's present in the text when our hearts want to say the opposite. Lord, help us to see uh, your goodness and grace in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so scamming, phone scamming in the United States. It's a billion-dollar industry. Like every year, scammers make billions of dollars making false claims, false claims of affiliation with organizations like the IRS, telling people that, you know, they owe the, the IRS a certain amount, and you've probably received phone calls like this or received voice messages like this, right, where if you don't pay immediately, if you don't pay the IRS what you owe them immediately in these mysterious back payments that you've never heard of before, then you're going to go to prison. You know, the sheriff's on his way to arrest you. You're going to have to pay three or four times the amount that they're saying you owe, which already seems really high. And the only way that they can pull this off, right, it's lucrative. When we get these phone calls, sometimes we're like, how does anybody, how's this work? It works, right? And the only way it, they can pull this off is, is by claiming an affiliation that isn't genuine in a way that two others appears to be genuine, right? Claiming an authority that they don't have, claiming an affiliation that they don't have with the kind of authority that is convincing to some. So what's the, what does the IRS do about it? What does the FBI do about warning U.S. citizens about this kind of scam? Well, what they do is they give the marks of genuine IRS affiliation, genuine IRS claims, Sometimes framed in the negative. So if you go to the, the IRS website, there's a whole page devoted to this where it says, you know, the IRS will not call you demanding immediate payment. Call you without first sending multiple correspondence in the mail, which is the normative way that they operate. They'll never demand that you pay taxes in a specific way, like with your bank account routing numbers or Bitcoin, you know, uh, it's very, that should be a red flag, okay. Um, they'll never uh, threaten, threaten jail time for you. They'll never ask for specific numbers over the phone. Instead, you'll know if it's the IRS if they contact you by mail. First, if they send you specific uh, case number, they can be verified with the IRS's number directly, not the number that the guy on the phone gives you, okay? And there's a lot of other distinguishing factors too, but the point is, in order to avoid harm, right, the harm that this causes, it's necessary for the marks of genuine claims to be made known to the public, okay? Something similar is happening in John chapter 8. Last week, Jesus was speaking to the crowd, and do you remember, he was clarifying this big contrast. So if you weren't here, go back and listen. We did record. We didn't have a live stream, but we did record onto the podcast last week. Um, he, Jesus was telling us about this big contrast between who he is and who we are. You know, who he is and who the crowd is. Between where he comes from, where they come from, essentially between God and humanity, creator, creation, the eternally preexistent second person of the Trinity, and sinful humanity in need of a savior. The one who's come to save and those who are in need of a savior, okay? And so after he's done with this big contrast, which is really 
the big contrast at the heart of the Bible, the center of the scriptures. You can't understand the scriptures without understanding the contrast. After that's, uh, that's finished, the text ends this way. John records it. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And so the way we ended it last week was to say, listen, John includes responses like these in his text very intentionally. We've already seen it. You know, for instance, after he turns water into wine in chapter 2, the text says, and it's a real similar phrase, and his disciples believed in him. Right? So you have a teaching of Jesus and a response of faith, a miracle from Jesus, a response of faith. Okay. And um, we need to remember. So why does John include these responses? We need to remember a lot, so we'll keep coming back to it. But who is he writing this account to? Who is he writing the account to? Spiritually seeking people, spiritually seeking Jews and Greeks, who, specifically, who are scattered across the Greek-speaking world. And John wants his readers to see, to hear, to understand in this account what it looks like to respond rightly to Jesus. That's part of what he's up to here. He's shepherding his hearers to see what it looks like to respond rightly. It means believing. Remember that John shares his purpose for writing the book in chapter 20. It was the first week of this series together. We started in John 20. He said there's things that he's written there's a lot that he's omitted, but he's, he's, um, he's omitted what he's omitted and, and written what he's written, so that you may believe, right? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or that the Christ is Jesus might be a better way of understanding that, that the Messiah for whom you've been waiting, like spiritually seeking Greeks who are in the synagogue and they're reading their Old Testament, spiritually seeking Jews who are reading this Old Testament and they're seeing these promises, so that you may believe that the promises of salvation have, have arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. But we've also seen, you know, a theme developing in John that we have to keep coming back to again and again, which is, right, that there, we said it before, that there's faith in faith, there's belief in belief, there's disciples and disciples. In other words, some claims to have faith are genuine claims and some are not. Some claims to be a disciple are genuine claims of discipleship. And some are not genuine claims. There are those who have claimed to believe in Jesus primarily based not on who he is, what he's come to do for us, but rather what they believe he should be doing, what, what he's come to offer to them that they think is good and right, their own agendas, you know. They want Jesus for the stuff that they believe he can provide for them, but not Jesus himself as he's revealed himself, right? So this is important to understand because... As John's readers are hearing what we're going through week after week, you know, as they're hearing these events of the gospel, events surrounding the good news of Jesus, his life, death, and, and resurrection, he wants to make sure they understand the difference then between false belief and genuine belief, you know? If his purpose is so that we might believe, it's really important to explain what that means and what that doesn't mean. What it means to believe, what it doesn't mean to believe. Okay? And so now, once again, after um, many believe in him, Jesus wants to warn his hearers about what false claims look like. You know, we've seen it already, and now we see it again. 
And he shows them the marks or characteristics of genuine belief in this passage. So this isn't meant to be a comprehensive list. Jesus definitely isn't saying that there's only three marks, you know, of genuine faith, and here they are. It's not comprehensive, but it is primary, right? These are the marks that this crowd in particular needs to hear in this moment. Also, interestingly enough, these are the marks that John is going to write about again in his epistle, 1 John, warning the church about false teachers. He's going to say there are marks of genuine teaching, marks of false teaching, and these marks that we see in the text this morning correlate almost exactly to that. The men of Gospel Life Church are going to be studying through 1 John this fall, right alongside of, of John's Gospel as we preach through it. So I'm excited for that. I invite the men out to that. But um, we're going to see that more and more. So we see three of these marks, marks of genuine belief, here in this section. Starting in verse 31, look there with me now. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, who had believed him, sorry, that's important. The preposition is not there. Okay, I don't know if John omits it on purpose. All right, let me read it again. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Notice that in verse 30, it says believed in him. Now these are those who believed him. Again, I don't know if it's intentional, but it's worth noting. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So here we see, firstly, okay, genuine faith is marked by perseverance. Genuine faith is marked by perseverance. Now, before I get into what I mean by that and what kind of perseverance I'm describing here, note again that Jesus is directing these words to those who have made claims of belief. Right, now, I don't think he's saying that everyone who believed in verse 30, everyone who put forward commitments of belief or, or expressed a proclamation of belief in Jesus in verse 30 is putting forward a false faith. In fact, I think that might be what he's up to with the absence of a preposition. I might be reading too much into that. But I do think that there are some in this group who have made genuine claims of faith. It seems clear to me this is part of the reason. You know, John's trying to shepherd his readers to understand what it looks like to respond when Jesus is declaring who he is. Okay. But it's also clear in the text that there are some who have made these claims that have done so out of false motives that need to be exposed. All right? Uh, because down, it's only a matter of time down the road before what they're saying about what Jesus came to do departs from in exactly the same way. And it happens actually pretty quickly in the text, what Jesus actually said. So, um, so it begins with Jesus saying, listen, if your claim is genuine to have faith in Jesus, if you're like, yeah, I claim Jesus, I believe in Jesus, if that's genuine claim, all right, if you're really a believer, you will abide, the text tells us. You'll abide. This word abide will become increasingly important in John's gospel. It's one that we'll come back to again. All right? It simply means to remain, to stay. But it has a sense of, like, continuance. Like, keep going. Persevere in the place where you're in. Like, this, this specific spot that you're at, persevere there. Stay there. Remain there. Keep going there. Don't, don't move out of that spot. All right? Persevere. Jesus says this is a mark of genuine faith to the point that if someone does not abide, and that's really the structure of the passage, it's the grammar of the passage, it's conditional. If someone does not abide, if this remaining or persevering is not characteristic of a person's claim, the claim is not valid. Jesus is saying, read it, you know, like Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and that, that's that contrast is going to grow, you know, even more starkly. So 
If you abide, you're truly my disciples. But that raises an important question that the text addresses here. Abide in what? Remain in what? In other words, what is it that we're called to persevere in as Christians? And there's a lot of confusion around this. There's a, there's a Christian doctrine that I ascribe to called perseverance of the saints. And essentially what it means is that if you're a believer, if you're a genuine believer in, in Jesus, you will persevere to the end. There's a lot of misunderstanding of what this means and what this doesn't mean. So what does Jesus say? Well, he says, if you abide in my word, in my word, and this phrase is loaded with a number of things, but some of which I'll get to in the next markers of genuine faith. Like, we'll come back to this phrase, but what we'll deal with now is, is the most central reality of this phrase. He's telling his disciples, listen, so in the word is shorthand for Jesus' teaching, right? And what's at the center of his teaching? It's his gospel. It's the good news that he holds out to them. Right? So he's saying, if you abide in the gospel, in the center, the very center of God's revelation to you about who I am and what I've come to do, then you are truly my disciples. If you no longer adhere to the gospel, and we're going to talk about what that good news is in just a second, because it's important, right? If you don't abide in the gospel, if you no longer do it, if you subtract from that gospel, if you add something to it, you're not my disciples. And that's also a theme that we see run across all of the New Testament, Okay. In other words, abiding in the gospel is fully and completely believing, trusting, relying in what Jesus has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. And we use that language a lot of gospel life intentionally because this is really at the heart of the matter. What Jesus has done for me that I could never do for myself. What Jesus has done for us collectively that we could never do. Put succinctly, the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. We talked about this at the tail end of last week. The gospel is that Jesus entered, Jesus, God himself, the eternally preexistent second person of the Trinity, entered human history to live the life we should have lived, but failed to live, to then die the death we should have died in, in our place as our substitutes of the now, through his work, not my work, relying completely on what he's done and not on anything that I have to do, God can receive me, God, God regenerates my life. He, he creates a new person. And, and also through this work, through this cross work, he one day brings complete transformation to the entire created order. Right? But that starts with us. Right? The father looks at me and accepts me because he sees the completed work of his son standing in my place, making me right before him, giving me his righteousness, even though I'm deserving of the opposite. I can't. I can't somehow make God's word, God's world, his created world, recreated or new. That's not a work that I can accomplish. I also, like, sometimes I think we do approach the world that way. Like, we're able to bring about God's kingdom, that, that, that it's our work, right? That it's something that we have to, to accomplish. But we're, we're not even able to transform. Jesus is saying we're not even able to, tra to, to transform our own hearts, let alone the world. We need him to come and do everything for us. And, you know, as we've seen throughout the scriptures, if we try to say, yeah, 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 you know, Jesus is great. You know, he did all the heavy lifting, which I really appreciate. But now I got to do my, my 1%, my bit, my light lifting here. So I'm going to add, it's Jesus, sure, it's Jesus, plus church attendance. It's Jesus plus, you know, baptism. 
It's Jesus plus some kind of good work that I got to do in order to earn my salvation now. And if I'm not doing those things, then, you know, Jesus did 99%. I failed to do my one, and I don't, I don't make it through. I don't pass. So in this way, I'm like, I'm like um, adding to my own salvation. I'm contributing to my own salvation in this way. But listen, uh, Jesus is telling us here, the gospel is in abiding, not adding. Right? We're called to abide, not to add. It's remaining, it's persevering in what Jesus has done. The kind of perseverance that Jesus describes here is perseverance in our faith that he alone can save. It's perseverance in faith. It's perseverance in gospel. Gospel graces, it has to be. It has to be, and I'll prove it in a second. It's perseverance in what God has disclosed centrally in the person of Jesus Christ. And actually, this is where uh, the, the idea of Christian perseverance is the most misunderstood. Okay? Because there are some who talk about perseverance as though the primary thing that Jesus means in this text is that genuine believers will persevere in good works. Now here's the thing. I believe that genuine believers are changed. We do live our lives differently. It's true. Like As we'll see in a minute, the good news of Jesus actually changes and shapes our life. That, that if we do not see any change, you know, if we just live like the rest of the world, if we're unrepentant and we're just like, yeah, whatever, I... I believe in Jesus, but there's no differentiation between me and the world. The New Testament holds out no hope for us that we're saved. The Bible holds out no hope that we're saved. That transformation, though, that change that we see, it's the fruit of the gospel. It's not the gospel itself. And this is so important. It's so central to clarify. It's the thing that makes us bristle and push back against what Jesus says all the time. Because we, we really want to see ourselves as having a part in this. But this... The change in transformation is the fruit of the gospel. It's not the gospel. Those good works are a product of what happens when grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone is really grasped by the human heart. If perseverance means primarily perseverance in works, then let's read that again. You know, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. If Jesus is saying, if you abide in my teaching, then you are my disciples, he's actually undermining the very thing he's telling us, which is abiding in the gospel, believing in his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone to save. We can never save ourselves. This is why God sent his Savior. Faith in what God has disclosed in his word is what's being called for here, a perseverance in that kind of faith. So the first marker of genuine gospel belief is perseverance in that gospel. Perseverance and grace through faith in Christ alone. But, okay, so as we talked about, as we persevere in that gospel, there's change that comes about. It generates a new kind of living. And we start to see that in the next mark of genuine faith, which is submission to the word's authority. Now, speaking of adding things um, and, and not wanting to add to the text, uh, in, in the liturgy packet, and I'm almost certain it was my fault, there's a, uh, there's a typo there. I went ahead and took the liberty of, if you, if you felt violated turning to this page in your liturgy pack, and you're like, someone's marked on my, it was me. And so I, that's because, listen, right? This is a re- it actually ended up being a really good illustration for this. And it was totally unintended. This isn't like a staged, okay? If you add one letter to the word, <laughs> uh, it, it actually doesn't just change the meaning. It makes it mean the opposite, Okay. I did not intend to write submission to the world. And as we'll see, it's exa- that's exactly the opposite. 
This is submission to the word. In particular, it's submission to the word's authority. Submission to the word's authority. Look at verse, uh, the first part of verse 32. And you will know the truth, right? If you are my disciples, you will abide. Okay, you'll persevere. And you will know the truth. In other words, abiding in the word, that phrase, abiding in the word, centrally it applies to the gospel, but it goes beyond that, you know? It go, goes beyond that into the teachings of Jesus himself. The what it is that Jesus has to say to, to us, how it is that Jesus disclosed himself to us that we see across the scriptures. Primarily, it has the sense of remaining in the gospel, but by definition, as we continue to see, abiding in the word means that when God's word declares something as true, and when your own heart maybe leans the opposite direction of what the word is more clearly saying, and you know, you just know in your spirit that you have to end around certain things that are more obvious to reach the thing that you think should be in there, when your own heart leans the opposite direction of what the word says, your call as a disciple, in fact, what you will do as a disciple, is to abide in that word. In other words, to submit to it, to submit to the authority of that word. Especially when initially your, your heart bristles at it, you know? And this is where we see all kinds of misunderstandings because, listen, Christians get demonized sometimes for obeying Jesus in, in this text. We get demonized because, even by others who claim to be Christians, because Christians hold to views that the scriptures espouse that in our time are deeply controversial. Like they're seen as bigoted and horrendous, right, abhorrent. You know, and so Christians hold to, to these things that the scriptures teach. But here Jesus tells us, you know, unless you hold the scriptures, you're not a Christian. So Christians get demonized for being Christian, like definitionally Christian. Unless one comes to the realization, Jesus tells us, that the scriptures are the very word of God, and as such, they hold the kind of authority over us, over everything in our lives, that demands our assent and our obedience for us to say his word is truth. We actually can't claim to be Christians. If we've decided that we're judge over the word, that misses, according to Christ, a genuine mark of Christian faith. See, every now and again, here's what happens, and this, this kind of compounds the confusion. The accusation goes out that Christians are weirdly obsessed with some aspect of culture, right? So we're weirdly obsessed with sexual ethics, or we're weirdly obsessed with the idea of eternal judgment and hell, or Christians are just weirdly obsessed with exclusive claims and all these things. So we're, Christians are just so obsessed with sex, they're so obsessed with hell, why are they so obsessed? And the evidence that we're weirdly obsessed is because we talk about it a lot, you know? But there's more going on here. It's like when people who claim to be Christians in broader culture argue, and you need to understand this, when there's a large movement in surrounding culture, especially in those that claim the name of Christ, that argue, that make arguments to other Christians from a very loud platform in broader culture, that what the Bible says on sexual ethics, it does, that doesn't really, you know, they're, they're essentially false. That what it says about hell is essentially false, right? Shouldn't we respond? Shouldn't, shouldn't there be a, a sense of firmness in response to Christians? Won't, won't there be more, more conversation on those points? Rather, you know, of course Christians are going to talk more about the areas that are being confronted by other Christians 
than they will about areas that the rest of the culture says, yeah, yeah, fine, love your enemy, I agree with that, you know? This is important to understand, right? Um, the primary reason Christians are talking about those issues so much is because those issues are being challenged even by Christians, that there are entire books written to Christians by Christians that essentially rewrite all of what Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years about these various subjects. So the issue isn't just the issue. The issue isn't sexual ethics or hell or exclusivity. The issue is that the word is being called into question by Christians. And what does Jesus call us to here? If you abide in my, my word, you are my disciples, and you will know the truth. It's the truthfulness of the word. But come on, I mean, if you're truly a disciple of Jesus, of course you're going to submit to the teachings of Jesus. And I don't, you know, there's a sense in which we shouldn't be so surprised by that. That to be a disciple of someone means to adhere to their teachings. Jesus is the one saying this. And this is actually true and accepted in any organization. If you were to join an organization and then explicitly begin to undermine the foundation documents of the organization that outline what it means to be a member, you'll very quickly find yourself invalidating your membership. And nobody would think, nobody would think it's because the organization must have some weird obsession with its foundation documents, right? My daughter plays softball. Uh, she, pl she plays softball, and she, she's been um, pitching for her 10U team for a couple of years now, and um, it's just been fun watching her grow and develop. But this year, she, she had to move up age range to 12U softball. And the difference between 10U and 12U, sure, it's, these girls are older, they have more experience, right? But there's a more fo foundational difference the ball goes from 11 inches to 12 inches, you know? And if you've been pitching for the last few years, you're throwing, hitting with a 10U ball, the 11-inch ball, uh, a whole inch makes a big difference on grip, on positioning, you know, and she's starting to kind of feel that difference. But if she were to show up to a 12U game with a 10U ball, an 11-inch ball, and just say, like, well, why are you guys so weirdly obsessed with the size of the softballs? Would she be able to make that argument? No. Why? Because the issue is 12U has very specific guidelines, right? Jesus says, like, listen, what it looks like to live according to the gospel in the world is different than the world around us. There are things that I've stated that are true, and they're actually for your good. When you push back against them, they're for your detriment. But it shouldn't surprise us that Christians are called that the followers of Jesus are called to actually follow Jesus, okay? So let's follow the logic here. If you abide in my word, if you remain, persevere in the gospel, you are truly my disciples. And if you are truly my disciples, therefore you will believe that what my word says is true. Even if your natural inclination is to disagree, you'll believe, right? And so on the one hand, the implications here are that Christians will come to believe the word is truth he or she will submit to the word's authority, but also that that submission itself is a gift of God's grace to us. You wouldn't have come to a realization of the truth of the gospel and all the implications of that gospel and the world around us if, if it weren't for the grace of God and Jesus Christ to show us that truth. Another way of saying this is that it's not just some intellectual commitment. It's a moral one. C.H. Dodd is so helpful here. Dodd writes this. He says, because of the truths 
intimate connection with Jesus. So think about that for a minute. Because of the truth's intimate connection with Jesus, Jesus in a few chapters is going to say, in a few sections of text forward, is going to say, I am the truth. So not only is there intimate connection, but Jesus himself centrally is truth. Right? So because of the truth's intimate connection with Jesus, true disciples must not only hear his words, they must in some sort be united with him who is the truth. So if we're going to claim the name of Christ, if we're going to claim to be united with Christ, then we're united with truth. Then what he says stands. What he proclaims stands. What he says is good and right. What he says is to be trusted. What he says is to be seen as truthful. Those who persevere, right? genuine believers are those who persevere in the gospel. Those who persevere in the gospel, those who remain in Jesus, will necessarily submit to his authority in every sphere of life. They don't compartmentalize. Here are areas that Jesus can't touch. Here are areas that he can. Here are areas that he isn't able to speak into because you know what, I'm just not... I'm, I'm, I'm more taken by what I'm hearing over here, and that just doesn't sound right to me, so he can't have this part, but he can have this part. There's no compartmentalization, and that brings us actually to the third mark of genuine belief, which is transformation in life. Transformation in life, um, verses 22 to 36. This is like, we see in, sorry, 32 to, 20, to 36. Um, this is transformation that primarily is happening inwardly, that then uh, is seen and evident outwardly. Okay, so let's read this. And the truth will set you free. There's this real existential, joyful, inward reality that changes in you, a freedom. So let's keep reading about it. They answered to him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, at least some of the Jewish audience here got a problem with this statement. Some of them claim belief. And Jesus tells them, well, if you genuinely, if you genuinely believe... You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. And they're like, whoa, 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 time out. Okay, so you can already see the irony. They're starting to kind of like push back on the very, show the very marks of genuine faith don't belong to them, right? So, okay. Wait, if what you're saying sets us free, they're saying, Jesus, time out. If what you're saying is that the truth will set us free, the implication behind that is you're telling us that we're not free already, that, that we're somehow slaves. But we're not slaves, Jesus. Don't you know who we are? We're sons. It's just like last week. Um, the idea here is we're not the ones with the problem everybody else is. We're able to hold the law. We've had the privilege of being called God's chosen people. We've had God reveal himself to us, the children of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? We're, we're sons. They're obviously not saying they've never been enslaved in the sense of like foreign occupation. Clearly they're not arguing that. We know, you know, throughout Israel's history, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, others. They had all oppressed them. They've held them captive throughout Israel's history. But what are they doing instead? They're pivoting again to this idea that they're not the ones in need of salvation from sin. They don't actually have that problem. So that's not the kind of savior they need, which we see week after week. And so by doing this, they all demonstrate, again, just thick with irony, they all demonstrate that they they are lacking the marks of genuine faith that Jesus is talking about up to this point. 
They think they have something to do with their own salvation. So they're not abiding in the grace of the gospel, but rather rejecting it at the outset. Because right away, it's like, i got a problem with you, saying i got a need of a Savior. In that way, in that sense. They hear Jesus speak truth about who he is, but then they challenge it by essentially saying, that's not true. You know? Carson writes this. It's a longer quote, so I'll put it in two parts, but super helpful. Um, he writes, the final sentence of this verse how can you say that we shall be set free has an ugly, challenging tone. These believers are already demonstrating their unwillingness to hold to Jesus' teaching. For their sense of inherited privilege is so strong that they can neither acknowledge their own need nor recognize the divine word incarnate before them. Right? And so, what happens? Well, they, you know, they're lacking the marks of genuine faith. So what have, what have they missed in missing Jesus, they've missed transformation in life. All markers are absent. But Jesus says, listen, the sin we talked about, that sin that we described last week in the text, of being separated from God, of being a part of this world, created world order that sets itself against God, that sin, like, it, it truly enslaves you. And not only so, like, do we see how not, like, failing to remain, abide in the gospel, actually truly enslaves you we can we can prove it we, we know how it feels if you think you can save yourself it's just this exhausting slavery you're constantly pulling and pushing and trying to do something about your you you know inwardly that there's something that needs fixed you know and so you're constantly trying to improve yourself or or save yourself or do something that, that can pull you out of this. Man, it's just, it's, you're trying to do something continually that's impossible. It's like that, I talk about it a lot, but that Greek myth of Sisyphus who's condemned to rolling a giant boulder up to the top of the hill only to watch it roll back down again and then back up and back down again for all eternity. He's, he's given this inward task of having to roll this boulder up, but every time he rolls it up, it just rolls back down and he has to keep doing it endlessly. Attempting to do that which we could never do. Attempting to do that which is just like internally exhausting to us. But the gospel comes, and what does the gospel do? It frees you from it. It frees you from that exhausting self-salvation project that you can never accomplish. It frees you from trying to save yourself. The realization that while you can't save yourself, so Jesus is, is telling them they can't save themselves, right? And they're offended by it. But this should be welcome news because the realization that you can't save yourself actually frees you because you don't have to attempt it. Because Jesus comes and gives you his grace, his mercy. And so you're free and that freedom really does shape you. It gives you, it gives you a new kind of life. Like there is a real existential inward joy about the Christian life. Like it doesn't just change our intellect, it changes our hearts. It changes our dispositions because we see we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to save ourselves. We don't have to somehow do that which is impossible because God has done the impossible for us. And it really can be applied to all of life. That kind of joy just flows out. So let's continue the quote from Carson because he sums this up really nicely for us. He says, not only does the practice of sin prove that one is a slave to sin, but the practice of sin actively enslaves. For Jesus then, the ultimate bondage is not enslavement to a political or economic system, but vicious slavery 
to moral failure, to rebellion against the God who made us. The despotic master is not Caesar, but shameful self-centeredness. An evil and enslaving devotion to created things at the expense of the worship of the creator. This is why Jesus would not let himself be reduced to the level of a merely political Messiah. It's not, listen to this, it's not that his claims have no bearing on the questions of social justice. But that the pursuit of social justice alone will always prove vain and ephemeral unless the deeper enslavement of sin is recognized and handled. In Jesus' view, Caesar himself is a slave. And yet, listen, as we saw last week, the ultimate bondage the people still think they face is enslavement to a political and economic system. And the Savior they want, therefore, has been reduced to the level of a merely political Messiah that ultimately can't save them. That's ephemeral in comparison, as Carson says, like that's weak, feckless in comparison to the Messiah that they're being offered. And yet the gospel that he's holding out to them actually has the power to bring radical change, even in the areas that they care so deeply about in the world, that one day the whole world will be made new. But the kicker is it starts with them. It starts with them realizing that they're no better, that they share the same deep problem of sin, and the Savior they need is the one that comes to deal with the problems at the center of their own heart. By way of their nationality, by way of their perceived obedience to the law, many of these people who hear Jesus they, they think of themselves as sons. And so once again, we see, like, why have they missed Jesus? Because they've mischaracterized who they are, not just who he is, but one of the reasons they've missed who he is is because they keep misrepresenting who they are. They see themselves as sons. They see themselves as sons. In reality, Jesus tells them that they're slaves, you know, by way of their nationality, perceived obedience to the law, by way of being Abraham's children. They think they know who they are, but in reality, Jesus says, don't you realize who you are? Don't you realize that slaves have no permanent part in the family? But it's not that there are no sons. Jesus says, the son has come. I'm the son. See, the good news that's held out here in these verses is that the true son came to give his life for the slaves. <laughs> you know, the slaves of the household, the son came to give his life for them so that we might not only be freed, but, but ourselves become inheritors, members of the family. You know, and this transformation expresses itself outwardly because it primarily occurred inwardly. So look at verses 37 and 38 again and see this transformation as we end. Some of this is going to be a hinge verse that's going to swing us into next week's text. He says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So again, it's like you can't embrace Jesus and reject his teaching because ultimately that leads to the antithesis of, of the gospel. So he says, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father. You do what you have heard from your father. And we're going to find out who he's saying their father is next week. He's saying, I know you're your offspring, yet you've rejected me. In other words, in Jesus' words, we hear why the Apostle Paul speaks the way he does, why John, when he's writing Revelation, speaks the way he does. Like, now listen to Paul, right? He says, a man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly. 
Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. So this is a notion that, like I said, John will continue to allude to, even as he writes Revelation. Do you remember in which he told us, you know, you might have, ascent, uh, you might have come from, descended from Abraham, but you can only claim to be one of God's people through the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's what makes one truly the people of God. It's an inward change, not an outward change. You can't reject Jesus and yet claim to be God's child simply through your descendancy. In other words, Jesus comes and regenerates your, your spirit. That's what makes faith possible. He makes you alive again. He brings you from death to life. He brings you from slavery to sonship. The son coming to die for the slaves that we all might become inheritors, sons. And, and that inward transformation makes us God's children. It creates more than just intellectual knowledge. It gives us freedom and life and joy that we didn't have before. This is the power of the gospel. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been relying on your own self-righteousness. Maybe you don't think you're in need of salvation the way that Jesus holds out salvation. Maybe you've questioned it. Maybe there are aspects of God's word that you've said like, sure, yeah, I can get down with that, but that other stuff, that just seems too crazy for me. And so you've questioned or rejected it. Maybe you hear God speak and you decide to make judgments about the word based on surrounding culture instead of making judgments about surrounding culture on the basis of the word, right? But in all those cases, let me just implore to some of your senses here. In all those cases, it's going to lead you to a life of exhaustion, the exhaustion of slavery, you know, because you've essentially attempted to sit in the place of God, something none of us really can do. You've attempted to pull yourself out of the problem that you're in, something none of us can do, and that's exhausting. But, but hear the words that can free you from the exhaustion and set you in, into real freedom, freedom of God's grace and mercy and love through the work of Jesus. The son came to give his life that he might rid you of his slavery, but like, listen, it's not the kind of ridding where it's like he comes and frees you from the prison house and then just like, Okay, you're freed from the prison house. Good luck out there. Frees you from the prison house and brings you into his kingdom. Gives you a seat around his table. That you might have the grace of fully relying on his work instead of yours. That you might find peace and rest truly there. And so we ask this morning for the grace to believe the gospel. To abide in it. To submit to it. To be transformed by it. Since that's his work and not ours, let's pray. Lord, we come to you needy. We come to you expectant that you will do for us through the cross what we can't do for ourselves. Lord, by that same grace, Lord, we're unable, we're unable, we're weak. Our hearts so much desire to pivot back to a life of self-righteousness, works righteousness, saving ourselves, finding a way to do this by ourselves. Maybe even, to Lord, this morning to be offended by what your word says, specifically about our inability to save ourselves. Lord, we just pray for grace there, grace to, to see and hear and comprehend the good news. This is good news, that though we can't do it, Lord, you've done it that we might be able to find rest and peace and grace in you. So help us, Lord, in this gospel, together at Gospel Life Church, to, to, to repeat it and echo it to one another so that we might be abiding in it together, remaining in it together, not departing to the right or to the left, not, not adding something to it or subtracting something to it, but abiding in this gospel, submitting to, to the authority of your truth and, and looking there for all 
authority. And Lord, that, that we collectively and individually, that we might be transformed by this, that our, our church might be transformed by your grace. And so this is your work, not ours. So it's the spirit of God working through the word of God. Give us the grace we need. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.